Before we get started, I just wanted to warn you that there are a few places throughout the recording where our audio recording equipment seems to have skipped slightly. We're not losing big chunks, it's just a few words here and there. It doesn't really change the overall effect of what we're talking about, but there might be moments where you notice it seems like we skipped a couple words or something. We're sorry. We're hoping to fix it for the next episode. I think it's Katie's computer being dumb. On to the episode. This film is lit, the podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian. I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. Look, some of us are lazy, all right? If by lazy you mean wrong. Prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide whether the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers. Because guess what? This film is lit. A coming-of-age tale about friendship, death, and the importance of knowing train schedules. It's Stand By Me, and this film is lit. I want to retitle this, The Importance of Knowing Train Schedules. It reminds me, uh, I know, I thought of that. I was pretty happy with that. But it reminded me of uh, uh, the title of... um, uh, Birdman is Birdman or the importance of being or I don't know it's got some weird title mm-hmm. like that and, but yeah I, it is a key element it is. for both them and the boy who gets hit by a train so so welcome back to the 21st shit I couldn't tell you one of to, to this film is lit <laughs> Uh, today's episode, we're talking about the 1979 film Stand By Me, based on the 72 novella, The Body, by Stephen King. I believe it's 72, 71, in that range. Early 70 I think novella. I think you're wrong. Oh. It's it? 1982. 82. So then it would be 89? No. The movie was like 86, I think. 86. Yeah. Boy, I don't know. Oh, I'm thinking of Captain America in 1979. That's a whole different show. <laughs> Had that stuck in my head. Anyways, so we're going to jump right into our first segment. Wait, actually, I forgot how all of this works. <laughs> I feel like it's been a while. We were doing so many in a row, and now I remember. We're going to do the part where I do a little, uh, for people who haven't seen the film, mm-hmm. it's a little synopsis. You must have started walking on the train tracks and just followed them the whole way. Yeah. Yeah, right. And then after dark, train must have come along and... I'll smack go. Yeah. Hey. Hey, you guys. I bet you anything that if we find him, we'll get our pictures in the paper. Yeah, yeah, we can even be on TV. Sure. We'll be heroes. Yeah. Four rambunctious boys set out on a trek to find the body of another boy suspected to have been hit by a train. The journey offers challenges and setbacks, trains, bullies, and leeches. It's a simple tale of friendship, growing up, and coming to terms with what all of it means. That's pretty much it without getting into spoilers. I think that's a, br- a fairly good brief 
Yeah. I mean, it's a very simple tale. It is. And there's not much to set up in terms of the world or, you know. Yeah, no. Backstory. It's just four boys in Castle Rock, Oregon, I believe it is. And they they hear about a, that a kid got hit by a train and that mm-hmm. these people, they, his uh, one of the four boys' older brothers knows where it is and they want to go find it. All for their own reasons. Yay, seeing a dead body. Yeah. All for their own reasons. And uh, and then they go set out on their journey to find it. That's it. It's pretty simple. That's it. Let's get into our first segment. Guess who? Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. Okay. Okay, we have four entries for cool. Guess Who today. He was sweating buckets and his hair which he usually kept combed in a perfect imitation of his rock and roll idol, Bobby Rydell, was plastered to his bullet head in chunks and strings. Oof. Okay. Um, the only one who really has a rock and roll haircut... I'm assuming he's one of the main four boys. It could also be like one of their older brothers, which I don't know any of their names. <laughs> I know Kiefer Sutherland is ace. Yeah. I guess it could be him. But my, my guess would be Corey Feldman's character, who I can't remember. I remember all their names. Gordy, Vern, Chris, and then Corey Feldman's character. Teddy? Yeah. Well, it's not Teddy. Okay. <laughs> it's Vern. Oh, yeah. He just has like a crop, like yeah. a buzz cut. Yeah, in like him. a buzz cut. Yeah. He was sweating buckets. Oh, wait. That was the no. first. I was I like, they're all sweating buckets. Yeah. <laughs> And here he came, dressed in sweat-stained fatigues and a New York Giants baseball cap, his mouth drawn down in distracted anger. His complexion darkened to a scary plum color. Even his scalp was purple under the short hedgehog bristles of his flat-top haircut. Okay, well then this would be Teddy, based on the fatigues. Unless they swapped that around, which they could have, but Teddy wears, fati- well, he doesn't wear actual fatigues, but he wears military color, like style clothing. And it makes sense because his dad was in World War II and he's like obsessed with the military. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with Teddy. It's not Teddy. Holy fuck! One of these has to be Teddy. <laughs> it's uh, Milo Pressman, the garbage dump guy. Oh, yeah, he's not wearing fatigues. He's just wearing like a, like a mechanic's jumpsuit yeah. in the movie. Okay. Hmm. The teachers didn't approve of this duck-tailed, leather-jacketed, engineer-booted apparition. Okay, this... The only person I think we see in the film, which apparently doesn't mean anything, uh, wear a leather jacket, I believe is Ace. It could be Chris, but he never wears a leather jacket, and... He, I mean, but he kind of has more of a greaser look to him, so it could be him. I'm going to go with Ace. It actually is Chris. Okay, I could see it being Chris, too. I just... Yeah. To be fair, that one, that description happens in, like, kind of a flash forward to, like, a little bit into the school year. Oh, uh, okay. So maybe he's just smart and doesn't wear a leather jacket in the in summer. In the middle of the summer, yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, fair point. Yeah, I... But I think we see Ace wearing one at some point, like in the when yeah. they're like sitting in the junkyard working on that car or whatever. Yeah. Not the junkyard, but when they're giving each other like cut <laughs> scars or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's wearing a leather jacket in that scene. So, is there any more? Was that it? Did I go over one more? All right, I got one, one chance more. to get one. He was close to being thirteen, like the rest of us, 
but the thick glasses and hearing aid he wore sometimes made him look like an old man. Back in those days, when it was cool to get your hair cut so that your ears stuck out like a couple of jug handles, that Rock's first Beatle haircut, four years before anyone in America had ever heard of the Beatles. He kept his ears covered because they looked like two lumps of warm wax. Okay, I'm gonna have to go back to the well and bank on this being Teddy. With the glasses and the hearing aid, assuming they do anything with the story with him having his ear messed up from his dad. Teddy. It is Teddy. Well, if if I just guessed it every time, except for once, so I feel like it had to be right eventually. I didn't read that one first on purpose. Uh, Tricked me. Especially (laughs) because the fatigues on the other one, uh, it's not fair. All right, fine. One for four. (laughs) Whatever. Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? Um, So I'm hitting a lot of the big key moments that people remember from the movie that I do um, sometimes, but alright, first one uh, I guess we can start in the film irrelevant, in, you know, in the story I mean, not in the film, obviously he's in the film Gordy's older brother, Denny, is he a character that of an, any importance in the, in the book? Yes. Okay Fo- following on does he give uh, Gordy uh, a Yankees hat? No. Okay. And I guess my question was kind of following from that are is Denny's role is it, it, it I guess you can just kind of explain what his how he shows up in the thing cuz to me the scenes with him the flashbacks cut in with Gordy's character and we discussed in the prequel episode so this is I already know this wasn't in the book that it, for the film they shifted the point of view or the the main character to Gordy sort of um, at least that's how they described it. He's the narrator. Is he? Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Well, but it's interesting because I, when I, I when we were talking about it, and I read that in the somewhere, I read that that Rob Reiner said he wanted to make the focus Gordy's character, maybe the focus. Not yeah, him. I think I can clear that up, but it's something that I want to talk about okay. in another segment. Okay, so we'll get back into the the Gordy being the focus versus whatever, because he is. I think I knew he was the narrator in the book, but yeah, Rob Reiner said he wanted to make him the focus. So my my question is, do we have the similar sort of flashback scenes punctuated throughout? The, the the story that we do in the film where we see Gordy interacting with um, John Cusack playing Denny, his older brother, uh, after Denny has died. or And he's remembering sort of the, their relationship. Not really. Okay. Um, he does touch on some memories here and there, but it's kind of a different relationship in the book, which is... Something that I don't want to talk about in another segment. That was one of the things I f- had a feeling um, was that their relationship was portrayed very different. Yeah. P- potentially very different. Because in the movie, and we'll ta- I'll just talk about how it's in the movie, and you can, when we get to the later segments, you can kind of discuss what you like better about the movie or the book, whichever. Um, is that he's, he's a very supportive, loving brother who's, who's mm-hmm. really, uh, yeah, just supportive of Gordy and his writing and everything he does. And his parents, their parents are obsessed with, well, specifically his dad is obsessed with Denny because mm-hmm. he's a the star football player and the older one and you know the firstborn son and all that sort of stuff and uh but Denny is always trying to um, right kind of shift the focus shift the focus you know, a little more equally and 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 give Gordy more of a spotlight and, and it's really sweet in the film and yeah. it's very endearing and I it felt a little like maybe this was kind a movie of movie thing a movie thing played up to 
to add a, an interesting dynamic between Gordy and his brother, and this, and and then to add him the hat, taking the hat mm-hmm. wasn't a thing in the book. Having their relationship be a lot more endearing and positive, or maybe not more, but just have their relationship being very uh, positive, um, super close brotherly relationship adds a lot more sort of stakes. Not not even stakes, but adds more emotional impact to him, his hat being taken that his brother, his now passed away brother had given him. So, all right. And since that doesn't happen in the book, they don't might not have to do their relationship the same way that they did in the film. Okay. So, and my main question there was, does he give him the hat? And the answer is no. (laughs) So, all right, next one, uh, early in the film, not early. I don't know. Fairly early in film after they set out Teddy at one point, a train is coming and he stands on the tracks and just stares down a train. He's like, I'm going to dodge the train. Mm-hmm. And then they have to yank him off the train, or Chris yanks him off the train tracks. Does Teddy do that in the book? Yes, that scene does happen in the okay. book. Okay. And it is Teddy? That, yes. Yeah. Okay. Because um, that, I, I thought it was interesting. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting character moment for Teddy early um, to kind of establish his... He's kind of a... He's definitely got a temper. He's kind of a loose cannon. Yeah. And he's very uh, disaffected by, is that, maybe that's the right word. Is that the right, uh, maybe I'm using the wrong word there. Obviously by his relationship with his father. Yes. And um, his home life and, and the fact that he, he he really looks up to his father because, or pretends to, because he was uh, in the military and that sort of thing. And it's kind of his whole identity in the film. <laughs> right. But at the same time, it was his father was very abusive to him while he was living there. And in the film, he has since been, it sounds like moved to a, like a, a home or a, some sort of something. Like a, they, I think they. Well, the guy implies it's like a mental institution. I don't know if that's the case or not, but yes, yeah. There's a little bit more to Teddy's backstory okay. in the book. Like the the thing about his dad pressing his ears against the stove is yeah. the same. Yeah. But when he does it, I, get, I think it's a neighbor who calls the the ambulance calls the police i think his dad starts talking like he's still in the war war, so it's it's a very clear like kind of ptsd PTSD type thing and he ends up going to like a veterans um psychiatric care facility yeah and i think it's very clear in the movie that the way teddy deals with the the trauma of that abuse is to idealize his father in a way and to almost completely dis erase mm-hmm. sort of the person he was when he came back from the war or whatever, or his experience with him post the war. I, I assume, I don't know if he was born after the war. I guess he probably was because this is a yeah. place. But I guess his later life, whatever, he he's very clearly idealizes sort of the heroic version of his father. Yes. And, and does his best to ignore and anytime anybody reminds him of the fact that his father actually did some terrible things to him and that sort of thing, he gets very upset about it. Yeah. Okay, so the train dodged in the film, and again, that sets up his sort of loose cannon. Maybe some uh, undealt with yes. like mental health yeah, issues. Yeah, mental health issues, yeah, that he has not. And which, and, yeah. at that time, in that time period, it's most people didn't have a good way to deal with, or right. a lot of it's, people didn't yeah, have a good way to deal with. It's unaddressed trauma. Yeah. Okay, so the train dodge is in the film, uh, which, by the way, that scene in the in the movie is, I thought I forgot about it, and it was one of the most uh, brilliantly handled scenes. I love 
that the the way they chose to film it that when he uh, when Chris finally pulls him off the train tracks and then he pulls him and the shot is up at the train and they're just yelling at each other but you can't hear them over the train mm-hmm. just that the the cacophony of noise of the train with them screaming at each yeah, other I yeah. thought was really successful are we watching them through the train at that point there's some it- of it I think it goes back and forth okay. there's a couple shots where it's through the train and then there's a couple where it's because I know one explicitly there's one where it's uh, up and you see like Chris is in the foreground it's like like a medium shot of Chris mm-hmm. with the train behind him but there is a couple shots through the like as the train's going by, yeah, and it's yeah, and it's just super loud and like yeah, that sort of building, uh, building of the tension and then release into this cacophony of like anger and train noise, train noise, yeah, which I just thought was really well done. The comb, does Vern bring a comb so that when they find the body and get on the news, their hair can look good? No, that's just the movie. <sighs> I right. like that as a small addition, though. Yeah, it's a good little moment for Vern to kind of. Uh, play up his sort of innocence mm-hmm. and sort of just, you know, well, yeah, we're going to be on the news. We got to make sure we look good if yeah. we find this dead kid. Yeah. You know? And then that loss of innocence and that's, loses the comb. That was my other note. And now it's very, uh, it's it, it's a little... On the nose. On the nose, but it is uh, on the bridge later in the film, whether the famous scene where the train comes while they're on the bridge. Uh, and he trips and falls and, um, or he's, while well, he's crawling. Yeah. He, uh, and I mean, there's even some, <laughs> there's some, there's even more symbolism in the fact that he's crawling at first. Yeah. Uh, being more, even more representative of youth innocence. And then he loses the comb in that moment. And then he stands up and starts running to escape the mm-hmm. train, death, oncoming uh, life, you know, whatever. So yeah, the, I thought the comb was a, it was a funny, and it's funny. I don't know how common just for, to play even more on the idea of it representing sort of a childhood innocence or innocence in general um naivete uh i don't know how common white combs were versus black combs but black combs are like pretty standard yeah and he happened to have a white one yeah <laughs> which i mean is sort of your basic uh right color spectrum right. of innocence, innocence versus yeah purity, purity versus yeah <laughs> And now I'm sure there, it wasn't super uncommon because it was probably like a bone or like a, you know what I yeah. mean? Some sort of like, or not, yeah. you know, something like made out of like bone or ivory or who knows, you know, something like that. But still, the the classic comb is a black, right. either plastic or whatever, <laughs> wooden comb. So, okay, comb not in the movie. I mean, not in the book. Definitely in the movie. <laughs> uh, speaking of the bridge train scene, is that in the book? Uh, the big climactic, not climactic, uh, climactic but of the this, second the- act-ish. The scene that everyone remembers. Yeah, the scene that everyone remembers the where they're on the bridge and then the train comes and they got to run and barely escape being crushed yes, by the train. Yes, that is in the book. Okay. Um, How does it play out? Similar? Similarly, I don't think that Vern was crawling. He wasn't crawling? Yeah, I don't I don't believe that was in the yeah, book. Um, but it plays out pretty similarly. Um, and actually, it was, it was pretty cool to read. Yeah. Because, you know, action scenes aren't all that easy to write. And that can be tough for yeah. sure, yeah. And it was kind of cool to read it. Like, he sets it up um, where you can, like, kind of feel the panic that Gordy's feeling in this moment when he bends down to touch the rail and it's, like, humming and yeah. he realizes that there's a train coming down the tracks. So Katie has found an excerpt from the train bridge scene in the book, and she's going to read it now. And worst, somehow most horrible of all, 
I couldn't hear the train yet, could not know if it was rushing at me from ahead or behind, or how close it was. It was invisible. It was unannounced, except for that shaking rail. There was only that to advertise its imminent arrival. An image of Ray Brower, dreadfully mangled and thrown into a ditch somewhere like a ripped-open laundry bag, reeled before my eyes. We would join him, or at least Vern and I would, or at least I would. We had invited ourselves to our own funerals. The last thought broke the paralysis, and I shot to my feet. I probably would have looked like a jack-in-the-box to anyone watching, but I felt to myself like a boy in the, an underwater slow motion, shooting up not through five feet of air, but rather up through five hundred feet of water, moving slowly, moving with a dreadful languidness as the water parted grudgingly. But at last I did break the surface. I screamed, TRAIN! The last of the paralysis fell from me and I began to run. Vern's head jerked back over his shoulder. The surprise that distorted his face was almost comically exaggerated, written as large as the letters in a Dick and Jane primer. He saw me break into my clumsy, shambling run, dancing from one horribly high cross tie to the next, and knew I wasn't joking. Cool. Yeah. No, it was good. And it was funny. It plays out uh, the, you know, the yelling of train. It's Gordy that the mm-hmm. yells train when he realizes. Um, although I don't know if he feels it from the thing. I think he hears it in the film. Yeah, you actually see like the smoke yeah, in the he, film. Yeah, like, he sees the smoke because cause he does feel the the rail before they start crossing the bridge. Yeah. But he doesn't feel anything. So then they go and I think he either hears it or sees the smoke because he's not crawling or anything. You know, he's just mm-hmm. walking. So I don't know if he or I guess he could feel it through your feet potentially. Especially on the bridge, I bet you could. Yeah, I yeah. bet you could. All right. All right, cool. No, that was, yeah, that was neat. All right, so the bridge train in the, in the bridge train scene is in the film. But, God, I keep doing, it's obviously in the film. Uh, all right, next one. The pie-eating story slash scene. Mm-hmm. Is that in the book? Yes, it is. Is it described? Uh, well, I, I guess we would probably just, we just hear Gordy telling it, I would imagine. Or is it? Well, it's actually... It's- Kind of interesting. So they're sitting around the campfire, mm-hmm. and he start. They start talking about this story, and then in the middle of the chapter is this segue into one of Adult Gordy's short stories that was published in a journal, and it is the pie eating huh. story. Interesting. Yeah. So then we are basically reading. Right, we're reading story. we're reading the short story version of it, and then at the end of it, we come back to the boys around the campfire. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's it's an interesting structure. Yeah, that's different. that I want to talk about a little bit later. Okay, well, that is an interesting way to do that. That's very strange. Yeah. Um, okay, but yeah, that's because I figured. I don't know. I, I mean, I figured it was probably. And, uh, yeah, seems like a strange thing to make up. I just I did, I figured he told a story of some sort because obviously with Gordy being a writer or becoming a writer and his, his prowess for storytelling that he probably did. I was just wondering if maybe they tried to come up with something more visually interesting and then a moment of levity in the middle of the film, or <laughs> uh, if that's what it, uh, if it played out the same and it, it was in fact the pie eating and puking. So there you go. Last one in the film. Uh, we find out that later, uh, later on in life, Chris, uh, whatever his last name is, um, Gordy's best friend. Uh, was stabbed to death in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. 
uh, trying to stop an interaction or a, a, a fight, altercation, an altercation between, between two guys in front of him in line. Uh, ended up getting stabbed in the neck and dies. Uh, one, I guess, does he die? Yes. I thought so. Uh, in the book. Second, is he stabbed in, 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 in what are the circumstances of his death? Is it's, he stabbed? It's the same. Is it the same? Yeah. Okay. And now, I because the reason I thought it was interesting, I think there's an, an interesting irony or whatever you want to call it to uh in the final climax of the movie mm-hmm. there uh there's a standoff between ace and chris and gordy mm-hmm. ace pulls out a knife and threatens to kill chris basically yeah. and ultimately uh gordy pulls out the gun and gets them to leave and we'll mm-hmm. discuss if that plays out the same at some point probably yeah um but i just thought it was interesting that in that moment uh he, you know he threatens to stab him and kill him and ultimately 10 years later or whatever that he does end up getting stabbed and, <laughs> and yeah, killed. He, he does in fact get knifed. Yes. Like the irony there is that he does get out of the kind of shitty. Yes. Like, yeah. That's what I mean. Yes. Prescribed sorry. Prescribed situation yeah. that he's in, but he ends up getting knifed in a fight. Still anyway. dies by the knife. Yeah. That was where I was going with the irony of it is that yes, he does escape. He does escape his, uh, his up his upbringing and, yeah. and sort of the 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 small town and the and uh, his station he escapes his yes. station in life, um, but ultimately still ends up getting stabbed and killed, which which everybody assumed is what was going to happen mm-hmm. to him when he, he was a kid is what happens to him, but he became a successful lawyer and you know and he did yeah. it and and he got stabbed in a way where you know he was trying to to, to be a good person and help and that and that sort of thing and break up a fight, so I thought there's yeah there's sort of a grand irony or sadness to that whatever you want to call it maybe irony is not the right word i don't know but um anyways so that is in the book cool that's all i had for was that in the book so we're gonna move on to lost in adaptation just show me the way to get out of here and i'll be on my way wow was lost yes yes and i want to get unlost as soon as possible all right so there's one thing that i didn't understand did Lardas have to pay to get into the contest? Oh my god. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think that joke was in the book. Oh, wasn't so. it? I didn't have anything for this segment, um, but I, when when they were talking about when that moment happened in the film where he's like, yeah. this is one thing I don't get. Lardas have to pay to get into the competition? I was like, perfect. <laughs> Because, yeah, it's a very simple story. There wasn't anything I was confused about or, or wasn't sure or needed more background on, really. Um, so, yeah, I just had one stupid joke for that part. So, now we're going to move on to Better in the Book. You like to read? Oh, yes. I love to read. What do you like to read? Everything. Okay, I have a couple things here. I don't have a ton for either section. Okay. Because... It's a pretty accurate, like, faithful adaptation. It's almost beat for beat. Really? With a few, minor like... Changes. Yeah, minor changes. And there are a couple, uh, a couple things that are changed to make it more movie-like, which okay. I'll get into a little bit yeah. later. Um, which, and just to, say, to point out now, this is, reading earlier... I believe it's it's one of Stephen King's favorite adaptations of his work, and I believe I've heard it. He said it was his first, the first adaptation of his work that he liked. Interesting. I think is what I read. In the 25th anniversary Blu-ray set, Stephen King 
noted that he considered the film to be the first successful translation to film of any of his works. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Better in the book. All right. So in the movie, right when they start out on their journey, the movie has them cross a really short bridge. Like it's a short, teeny little Oh, in trestle. the book, you said? No, in, in the, the in the movie. Yeah, like before anything. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right when they leave town, like right on the edge of town. Right when they right on the edge of town, they they cross a short little bridge, and I get the symbolism there. Yeah, Yeah. I understand the symbolism (laughs) fully, but I had this brief moment of like sheer disappointment because I thought the movie was skipping straight to. Like the main bridge. Scene, oh, really? Because that short bridge that doesn't happen in the book. And I was like, like I saw him start to cross it, and I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. Wait, just just a galdarn second here. One, way too early. Two, that bridge is way too yeah, short. <laughs> that bridge is not nearly frightening enough. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it ended up not being that, but right. Like as somebody who read the book, I just had this this moment of hang on. <laughs> So, all right. I don't know if that's necessarily better in the book as it is uh, when you've read the book, you're a little like, wait a second. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean it's better in the book. Because like you said, for the symbolism, for the, right. the moment in the film as they leave town and, then, you know, if I, as soon as I take this step across this hedge line of hedges, <laughs> this will be the furthest from town or furthest from oh. home I've ever been, you know, that sort of thing. But Another thing I liked better in the book, which we already talked about, was that we learn a little bit more of Teddy's backstory. I think that was useful. Is helpful. it specific? Like anything specific that's really interesting that we learn, or is it? Well, the the thing about like oh. it's more about what has happened with his dad, right? Which we already discussed, and, and sort of uh, made more a little maybe because I think you get the vibe in the movie of sort of PTSD and that sort of thing, but it just a little more explicitly, right? And uh, a little more background with on, on uh, yeah I, I think that there's more of an explanation in the book okay and it's it seems a little more solid to me yeah um in the movie gordy has a nightmare about denny's funeral he does not have the same nightmare in the book but he does talk about a recurring nightmare that he has which i think sounds creepier Okay. Um, so in the book, one of the things with Denny is that his bedroom is basically like an untouched shrine, which they, I mean, they, they touch on it. Yeah, they allude the to it. They allude to it. That but they don't, don't go in there. Right. Either. It's not an explicit thing. Like, so, so Gordy gets really creeped out when he has to go in there yeah. because it looks exactly like he's still alive. So he has this recurring nightmare that he has to go in the room and like Denny's corpse is in there. Oh yeah. Um and then like sits up and look, looks at him. That would be that is creepier yeah. than the cuz in the movie it's just that he's at the funeral and his dad turns and is like you you you, you I wish it was you or yeah. it should have been you or yeah. something like that. Um So yeah, no, that that is that would be creepier, and it would also <laughs> tie into some of the other uh, potentially a little more to some of the. That's interesting because I think it would one of the big themes in the movie, and there, and maybe we'll get to it. But one of the reasons the focus uh, is on Gordy, and like I said, you might have more about this. Is, um, is that Gordy's 
feels guilty about not he didn't see his brother's body or something. I think it was it that he didn't cry. Yeah, he didn't cry. Sorry, that's it. That's yeah. it. We'll see it in the movie. He didn't cry at his brother's funeral, and he feels really guilty about it. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the reasons he's so bound and determined to find the body, as it were, is he feels like. It's it will be closure for him right. to some extent yeah. to see the body, uh, and it will it will help him sort of come to terms with that final or with that part of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, that unresolved unresolved guilt. guilt is kind of his thinking, at least. Yeah. Um, and so I think the idea of using the the nightmare where his his brother is, you know, a corpse in his room, almost sort of could add to that angle yeah, yeah. of the guilt of, because, uh, you know, his brother, who he cared so much about and all that sort of stuff. Whereas having the recurring nightmare about his dad being like, I wish you were dead, doesn't necessarily tie into the same theme of guilt. I guess no, it, does, yeah, no, it yeah, does. It definitely ties into guilt. It's just a different, to me, it's a different guilt. It, it's a different communication or yeah. manifestation of that guilt. Right. That's fair. All right. What else is better in the book? All right. I have one more thing. So when they're camping out at night in the woods, and they in the movie they hear howling pack of coyotes, and, yeah, and they're yeah. like, and then they take turns with the yeah, gun, yeah, they, keeping they take watch. turns keeping watch, um, and they're like, oh, what could it be? Is it a ghost? It might be a ghost, and I was like, clearly it's a pack of coyotes. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Your kids grew up in the country, like yeah. in, a, in a little tiny town, running around out in the. You that know is, what coyotes? Very sound clearly like. coyotes. I mean coyotes. Would also be terrifying if yeah. you were camping in the middle of the woods because right. coyotes will tear you up. But maybe I don't know if that's true or not. But I feel like coyotes. Well, they would, be they would tear up. They would tear up kid a bunch yeah, of them. Maybe. They're, they're pack yeah, hunters. Maybe. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I don't know enough about coyotes. I don't know if people get eaten by coyotes or not. Well, kids do. I, I will take your word for it. Not to be the well actually guy, but there have only been two recorded incidents of coyotes killing humans in the united states or canada ever you're more likely to die from a champagne cork or a golf ball than you are to be bitten by a coyote so there's that that being said coyotes can still be quite scary anyway sorry so in the book it's not a pack of howling coyotes it is a screaming panther Oh, or mountain lion. Yeah, mountain lion. They do make Which, weird noises. If you have ever heard that, yeah, that's way creepier than howling coyotes. Yeah, and it's super rare. Like it's way more yeah. rare to hear than I, yeah, I feel it, like. Yeah, it sounds like somebody screaming. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I've heard. I've never heard it in real life, but I've heard yeah. clips of like it or whatever. A human person. You should put a. I'll clip. put a. I'll, put if a I can clip find in. one. I'll put one in right here. Maybe put one in of Howling Coyotes, too, so people can, can compare, compare. Yeah. which one's creepier. Because, in my humble opinion, Screaming Mountain Lion, way scarier. All right, so here are the Howling Coyotes. Wow, that was so not scary. And now here is Screaming Mountain Lion. Wow, it was terrifying. Uh, utterly terrifying. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, that w- I agree, though. That would be, because it's way creepier, and again, that, but I, I guess part of, part of the reason they would probably use coyotes is something, 
people watching the movie might not know what a screaming mountain lion is and might be like, what the fuck was that? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Whereas coyotes, people know what it is. And they're like, ah, oh, it's coyotes. They're kids. They're, you know, their minds are going crazy. It makes sense. Whereas if it's a screaming mountain lion, people who didn't know what that was might be like, wait, what, what, what were they hearing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. But I will posit that you could easily take care of that the same way they did in the book by having one of the boys be like, it's a mountain lion. Right. Fair enough. It sound, they sound like a screaming woman. Yeah. Which is the that's like the popular lore if you ever right. read Little House on the Prairie books. Yeah, it's a, a panther screams like a woman. Yeah. Okay. Well, that I agree though. Then that would be that would be better. But that's it for better in the book. Yes. So let's move along to better in the movie. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. All right. So I've got a couple things here. Um, the movie starts out with adult Gordy looking at the newspaper announcement of Chris having been knifed in the yeah. restaurant. Yeah, the story about yes, him. Yes, the story being about it. Yeah. Um, so in the book, we don't find that out until the very end, that that was how he met his, his demise. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it was a good decision to give this a little bit of a stronger framing story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it definitely adds um, that impending, the, the impending, um, what's the word for it? There's got to be an, an actual word term for this, for when, where, when you know the fate of a character. It's dramatic irony. Dramatic irony? Okay, yeah. well, that's what I was using earlier. That's not, what I, that's not the way I meant it. I meant it differently. But, so yeah, the dramatic irony, the, that sort of, uh, when you know. Right, dramatic where, irony is when the audience knows something that the characters right. don't. That is true. I did know yes. that. I remember that now. So yes, the dramatic irony of us knowing that, yeah. Right, and the kids don't know. And the kids don't know. Yeah, and it and just it makes that kind of like uh, reminiscing aspect a little bit stronger. Yeah. Than it might have been otherwise, because there are there are some voiceovers from adult Gordy, but correct me if I'm wrong. Like it kind of peters out throughout the movie like there are fewer and fewer like voiceovers from him as it goes on i think you're correct but they're definitely throughout um, yeah it might be less as we go i wasn't that wasn't something i was paying attention to uh like you know how how, how regularly we got those but i think that 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 seems correct that once mm-hmm. we get in more of the action and more of the right sort of drama later in the in the film we get less of that but it still happens now. no it does still happen i'm just saying i think that if you're going to make the decision to have fewer and fewer of the voiceovers then it's a good idea to make that framing device yes. stronger by having a scene at the beginning yes i would agree with that so let's talk denny and gordy's relationship Okay, yes, this is right. We put a pin in this from earlier. Right, we put a pin in this. Um, The Yankees cap does become kind of an interesting visual symbol of their relationship. So in the film, they have a good relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, Very brotherly. Denny, like, looks out for him and everything. In the book, they don't have a bad relationship. It's kind of almost non-existent. That was what I figured, like, kind of. Yeah, there's there's a huge age gap between them yeah. in the book, which and then there's a, a pretty big age gap in the movie. I don't think they ever say how much of an age gap. My guess would be, so he died as a senior in high school, mm-hmm. 
and and it was the year it was only a few months before the story we were watching right and gordy is going to middle school yeah at the like end 12. of the summer yeah so five six years potentially at most i would say you know what I mean? Yeah, like senior of high school to seven, maybe yeah, depending on somewhere in the five in to seven range. range. Yeah. Um. So in the book, it's like eleven years. Okay. So it's it's a good long chunk of time, and he he talks about how when he was like a little kid, he had kind of this hero worship for Denny, and Denny would like occasionally take him places, and he would get to hang out with the big kids. But that happened like less and less frequently as they both got older. So by the time Denny died, he was almost they're like they were almost strangers. Like right. they didn't really know each other anymore. Yeah. So there's there's not the same kind of emotional upheaval yeah. that we get in the movie. And I I liked that better for a couple of reasons. Okay. Um I think it's a better emotional center for the film for the film and it results in a better through line with the climax because in the climax in the book it's chris who has the gun okay and that makes sense in the book for a couple different reasons yeah um, well, one, it's Chris's gun. It's Chris's well, gun. Well, I mean, it's his dad's, but it, yeah, it's yeah. And Chris has like since we're missing that emotional thing with Denny and Gordy, sort of. Yeah. Um, Chris has more of the emotional. Yeah. Um, character growth, kind of. And he he does in the film as well. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely and and he's also uh, their relationship is the central. Yes. On screen, non, you know, non, you know, their their relationship and their back and forth is the central main part of the movie, um, other than resolving sort of the guilt and that sort of stuff uh, with Gordy and Denny. But so, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying that him using the gun or having the gun would make sense when we don't have the same because in the in the in the movie. De- or, uh, Gordy doing it makes sense because one, there, w- with the story we have, with the connection between him and Denny and his brother or his older brother Denny and the hat, mm-hmm. and them having taken the hat from him, and him uh, being sort of the uh, eternally put upon sort of little brother, little brother, uh, having that moment of standing up for himself, standing up for yeah. himself uh, is a very satisfying climax. Yeah, I think it's more satisfying. It's more salient. And like I said, I think it's just, it's a better emotional through line. Yeah. Um, in the book, it's a little more focused on Chris mm-hmm. and like his emotional through line, right? which is also important. Yeah. But I think the way the movie does, it makes a little more sense, especially considering that Gordy's the narrator. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing is that Chris, we never got the vibe that it it never seemed like Chris wouldn't stand up in the film, that Chris wouldn't stand up for himself to other people that he thought were equal to him or that were on the same rung of society as him. His problem came with people who were on higher levels of society or who had authority over him. That was his bar that he had to overcome. In the film, he had issues. St- he had trouble sort of uh, speaking up and standing up to adults and people that like looked down on him or yeah. people that assumed he was just as bad or you know just as mm-hmm. um, 
because because he came from a family where his brother and his father were both deadbeats and like slat, you know, like yeah. you know, criminals and that sort of thing. So he had trouble sort of uh, standing up to the in the face of that narrative from everybody in the film. But he didn't seem to have trouble standing up to. Like he, it never seemed to me like he would have trouble standing up to Ace's gang. Mm-hmm. Like, and so in as far, and he doesn't in the film. Like he does stand up to him until ultimately, you know, a guy pulls out a knife and there's like eight of them there. Yeah. Um. So I think it makes sense to transfer that to Gordy because that's a that is a gro- that is growth for Gordy. Whereas I don't think Chris pulling a gun and pointing a gun at them and telling them to go away is necessarily any growth for his character in the movie. Right. So I can see why they would make that change. I think that makes yeah. a lot of sense. And and I I said I was maybe gonna clear up the thing about shifting the focus to Gordy. Yes. And I think that clears it up. Yes, I think it does uh, a little bit. So it, you would say it's more focused on Chris, or maybe not even more focused on Chris. But he gets the big emotional kind of moment right. at the end, whereas in the movie it changes to Gordy. S- so that's what he means when he said, yeah. maybe potentially what Rob Reiner means when he said he wanted to shift the focus to Gordy. It's still, the focus is on both of them, um, but Gordy gets the the big climactic standing yes. up to the bullies moment because it's more important to his character in our narrative in yes. the movie than, than it would be for Chris. Cool. That makes sense. Uh, a couple small things. Um, the whole conversation that they have over the campfire is maybe one of the most amusing parts of the movie oh the back and forth yeah. where they're just like bullshitting and they're, yeah, yeah. Where they're just when, when he says random stuff when he says the line of uh you know we spent the night talking about things that seemed important before before you liked girls or yeah. like before you found out about girls or whatever the line is something along those lines and they're like talking about what goofy is yeah and and cherry pez and yeah. just a bunch of stupid yeah dumb stuff, stuff that that every kid remembers talking about at sleepovers and that sort of thing yeah yeah, it's a good, it's a good scene. And that's not in the book. No. Cool. And um, another thing, so I mentioned that the pie eating contest story, um, the way they set that up is they kind, of, Stephen King kind of sticks it in the middle. Yeah. And there's a font change. Yeah. Love a good font change. <laughs> um, and it's set up as though this is a story that he published as an adult in a literary magazine. There's one other story in the book that is set up similarly. Yeah. It's not in the movie, and I'm so glad that it's not. (laughs) Okay. Because it's boring. Yeah. And it just doesn't... Doesn't add anything? It doesn't add anything. What is it? (sighs) It's like this weird, like, melodramatic um, story about this guy named Chico, and he has sex with this girl, and then he comes home, and his parents kick him out, and it's supposed to be about, like, like the thing that we're supposed to get out of it, because Gordy tells us this after the story's <laughs> okay. over, which... A plus writing there, yeah. Mr. King. Um, Here's the point of that you just read. <laughs> so what we're supposed to get out of it is that it's about him, like, being angry about his brother's death or something, something, something. Because the character in the story also has a dead brother. Okay. 
And I was just like, I was reading it and I was like, it was so long. Yeah. And I was like, do I have to read all of this? Like, what am I? You don't, so then you don't I, need I, to. You I skimmed it and I flipped to the end and I was like, oh, there's the explanation yeah. of what I needed to get out of that. Cool. Thanks. So if you ever read The Body by Stephen King and just, you get to the part just, about Chico, skip it. you just can skip, skip it. to the end and then read the line where, where uh, Gordy says, and here's why that matters. And the other, you know, the other thing that I loved about that is that I said it wasn't very good. It's not. And then after it's over, he's like, um, adult Gordy's like narration is like, oh, it just smacks of writing student in a workshop. It's so terrible. And I was like, why did you include this? (laughs) I don't, you're couching it so hard. Yeah. I guess his idea, and it's funny, I guess my my only defense potentially would it be, and it's not really a defense, that'd be maybe he put it in with that sort of couching at the end uh, for writers, and, and obviously you didn't enjoy it, but um, <laughs> for writers in the sense of uh, a sort of almost an in-joke for writers about how, you know, we've all been there yeah. when you're a writing yeah. student writing something truly terrible, but... No, yeah, I mean, I I go back and read the stuff I I wrote as an undergrad, and I'm like, this is so cringeworthy, but it was so long. Yeah, see that? that And it didn't add anything. Like, it's just, it's a lot for an in-joke. Right, yeah. Especially since after it was over, he explained the in-joke, and then explained what he wanted us to get out of it. It always makes jokes better when you just triple explain yeah. this. Although you just explaining the joke is an A plus way to make a joke. Yeah. So that was all I had for better in the movie. All right, and I don't have anything else in sort of general notes. Uh, I have a little um, bit more we can discuss. I have some general notes because there were some differences that I didn't really know where to place. Okay. So the cut scenes showing what the bullies are doing. Oh, yeah, yeah, in the movie. Yeah. That's not a thing in the book. Okay. Which makes sense because it's all from Gordy's perspective. Right. So he, he wouldn't know, know what, they're what they're doing. And even as an adult. Even in the film, it doesn't really make sense because we're still yeah. getting it in. Right. And there is sort of omniscient there. There is it? one little line closer to the end of the novella where we get right his narration and he's like we didn't know it at the time but they were drive on their way driving out to come get the body. Oh, like when they're yeah. getting close to finding it or something. Yeah. He says like, "Oh, at the time, yeah, at the time know. we didn't know, but yeah. they were speeding down X road on their way to." Which that makes sense because he would know that right. because he would know that. they got they got yeah. there eventually. He would know so. that as an adult. Yeah. But like he wouldn't know that they were like Knocking over the mailboxes right, and right, giving yeah. each that, other that sort of stuff he would have no weird idea. T- scarification, yeah, <laughs> cobra tattoo yeah. scar things. So that's something that I was torn on because I think from a from a narrative perspective, I mean, well, not from the point of view perspective, but from a narrative perspective, it makes sense for us, the audience, to be able to see 
what's going on with them. Otherwise, they would just like show, show up. Show up, yeah. We need a little bit from them and, and, and just to get to know them a little bit. And it's right. very little in the film, but, you know, it's like two or three scenes. But I do think it kind of disrupts the main storyline. I don't necessarily disagree, but I also don't. I To me, it didn't seem distracting. It's such a tidy movie as it is. It's true. That way, it's not like we're wasting a lot of time with them or anything like that. And it literally is like two scenes, I think. It's the one where they're knocking over mailboxes. There's the mailboxes. Maybe three. They're the there's, one where they're doing the scars. There's the one where they play chicken with that truck. Yeah. And so the truck four, runs off the road, which, holy fuck, how much trouble would you get in? This is the 60s or 50s or whatever. I Nobody mean, got in trouble for anything. Still, like... You could just do whatever you wanted. That, that guy in the truck would have lived to go, yeah. like, report them to the police, I assume. Yeah, but that was just hijinks. That's just what you did oh back God. then. It didn't matter. Hijinks. It's, hijinks. Don't even get me that started was very, on... That was very destructive. Don't even get me started on the... Um, we, we, this would go on a whole different rant about... <laughs> What, kids these days? Yeah, about uh, <laughs> adults who, who yeah. did stuff like that and, and you know, saw it as sort of classic hide. When yeah. I was a kid, you know, he was running around drinking and driving and, and knocking over mailboxes and blowing up, you know, throwing firecrackers in, 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 in mailboxes. And, you know, that was just what we did. Uh, you know, it was all harmless hijinks. But then as soon as yeah. any kid does anything... Especially if they happen to be uh, a kid who doesn't happen to be white. Oh boy, it is not so classically harmless hijinks anymore. Right. And it's, oh, I mean, that is a whole thing yeah, I have an like issue with. But It's a nice story there, Frank, but uh, it was still wrong of you to do that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Yeah, that's a whole nother <laughs> yeah. bag of worms. So that was a thing that, uh, yeah. Yeah. For me. Right. And it makes more sense in a movie than it would in the book, so yeah. fair enough. So the gun... I think the movie does a better job of setting up, reminding, and paying off the gun. Yeah. Because in the book, they don't keep watch with it. Yeah, it makes sense, too. Yeah, there's just, there's the setup when he has Gordy shoot it in the alley. Yeah. And then there's the payoff at the the very end. So I think the movie does a better job of that three act, that three, yeah, the normal, the three, what we talked about. Three act kind of structure. Um, but on the other Set hand... Set up reminder payoff. Not three X structure, but yeah. Three. Yeah. Set up reminder payoff. Yeah. On the other hand, it is a literal Chekhov's gun. Yeah. So I also kind of like the format where we essentially forget, forget about, about it, it. until yeah. the very end. Which to be fair, even still, I think the way the movie handles it, you still, even with the reminder, you still kind of forget about it in mm-hmm. the moment. Like I have seen this movie before. And I, I vaguely remembered how it ended, but it's been a long time. And I still was surprised in the moment when he pulls the gun out. Not like wildly surprised, but was like, oh, shit, that's right. They have a gun. Like, yeah. I, I literally, that was my thought. Like, oh, that's right. <laughs> like, I forgot about it. Even though, yeah, they did. They set it up and they reminded us. Like, And I had it in my notes and everything. You know, like, yeah. but I still kind of in that moment forgot that he was going to pull a gun on him. <laughs> like, no, and like... It- and I mean, that's why it's something that I'm torn on, because I, I think it works both ways, and both ways are good. Yeah. And a Chekhov, Chekhov's gun, for anyone who might not yes. know. We'll go ahead and explain that. It's a dramatic principle say stating that um, everything in your story should be essential. Yes. 
Um, if you show a gun, if you show a gun in the first act, it has to go off in the third by the third act. So it is a literal Chekhov's gun, and we we get this from Anton Chekhov, who was a playwright, and. There are several quotes from him where he extols the virtues of this dramatic principle using the exact same gun metaphor. Yeah. Like, you can look it up. He's several, in like several different letters, he talks about this. Yeah. But it's also been extrapolated to some extent, and maybe this isn't the correct usage of it, but the that is the sort of traditional interpretation, or not interpretation, his sort of yes. traditional uh, meaning is that if you see a gun, everything should have, everything in your, in your play, in your story should be important. We shouldn't see anything out of place that is doesn't come back. Right. To but also there's sort of a tw- not a twist on it, but that uh and this is something that uh Hitchcock did a lot of is is showing uh, the audience that thing in order to build mm-hmm. the tension to the moment when it does go off. Right. So obviously and there's there's similar ideas. They're just slightly different. Like the cl- the classic Hitchcock, uh, or at least what I was taught in film. I assume it was Hitchcock. I think that's what I remember. Is that when you edit a scene and then you show two people talking at a table and then you cut to under the table and there's a bomb with a timer mm-hmm. and then you go back up to the above the table and then the conversation continues. Now that that's within one scene because mm-hmm. obviously it's not going to play out over the course of a whole three act movie. But the idea is similar. Is that now you've created that tension by showing us the bomb. Then now that's we're waiting constantly, waiting for that to pay off. It's sort of an extension of Chekhov's gun, right. where you showed us the gun in the first act. That better mean something because it's creating tension. Yeah, that we're trying that is building to a final moment, and so it's sort of both of those things. One, it better pay off because why would you show it to us otherwise? But two, it better pay off because it is now creating tension in the audience mm-hmm. to that final. Unless. Moment. It's a red herring. Unless it's a red herring, <laughs> which is its own thing, or yeah. or because then you're subverting. Uh, right, then you're of, subverting Chekhov's gun, yeah. flipping it around. Which you can also do. A uh, whole do lot of stuff you can do. Yeah, all kinds of things you can do. But uh, but yeah, so that's that's Chekhov's gun. Anyways, that was that was fun. What uh, anything <laughs> else? I wanted to talk about the tone. Of the book versus the tone of the movie. Okay. Um, so, I don't know if you got this, but I, I thought that the book and the movie had a similar kind of nostalgic g- nostalgic gloom. Uh, let me try to interpret what you mean by that. Uh, if I had to guess, your idea would... Um, <laughs> the last line of the film is... I never had any friends like I did when I was 11 mm-hmm. or whatever. Do any of us? Yeah. My interpretive nostalgic gloom based on that would be the idea that nostalgic for the past because that was the only good times. Potentially? Or no? Is that not the way you were going with Like, not the only good times, but that that was the peak of your life. Sort of nostalgic, but... Gloomy. But gloomy because that was the peak or that was the best. Is that not what you were going for? Yes and no. Okay. Like an, an element of that, but also like this element of kind of the opposite of like rose-colored glasses where you're like seeing it and you're like, yeah, that was the best, but you also like feel upset about it. Hmm. I'm not sure I got that from the film. What do you mean? Okay. Let me let me backpedal on that. 
you're reminiscing about the past, right? And there's there's that nostalgia factor. And you do think that it was kind of the best of times. But within the narrative tone, there's this, like, a layer of, like, kind of inner rot. I think I can see that. Yeah, I think yeah. I can get what you're saying there. Where it's not necessarily coming from the narrator, but it's coming from, like, the way that things are presented. Yes. Yes, we're kind of looking back on the past with this nostalgic feel of, like, oh, it was the best of times. Right. But also, if you think about the characters in this movie, aside from those four main boys, everyone is awful. Yeah. Like, everyone is just the worst. That we run into, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we run into very few people, but yes. I mean, the his parents are are not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, all it, the bullies. All the bullies. The guy at the, the store. Guy at the, the, the guy, guy at the, the store. The junkyard. The guy at the junkyard. With the way they talk about their teachers. Yeah. Yeah. All of their parents, pretty yeah. much, at least as far as we... So no. that I mean that's what I mean when I'm yeah. saying this this yeah, kind yeah. of nostalgic gloom where the person who's looking back on it is reminiscing but they're not like actively acknowledging this kind of like I said this kind of inner rot but it's still present. Yes, there I think the thing that's most that's most interesting about it is that Yes, he's reminiscing, and and he's he's reminiscing so much, and 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 so nostalgic for the, his friendships that he had at that time, and we, it almost is rose colored glasses things because we see it's very obvious to all of us how terrible mm-hmm. all of the people that they like, all of their parents, and all of uh, everybody they interacted with were all kind of awful, and this was yeah. not a great situation g- generally. Yeah. But he still doesn't see it. Like, he yeah. still doesn't remember it that way. Yeah. It's... You know, because he's remembering explicitly their relationships and their moments together. Right. And sort of, yeah. 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 Nostalgic gloom. There you go. Well, we got there in the end. <laughs> um. So, the the book and the movie both have that. I think the book kind of cranks it up a little. The book is interesting because it almost feels like a ghost story. Um, like the the ghost of his childhood, right? Yeah, is what we're we're getting the story of. Um, it has the book has more of a sense of like generational malaise. Yeah. Um, where he's like kind of constantly talking about, oh, that's not there anymore. Now it's a shopping center, or what they you know that kind of thing. Yep. Um, and I think the movie achieves this to a degree but the book could almost be like a southern gothic like we could almost put it into that genre huh. which is southern gothic takes that idea of nostalgic gloom and like inner rot just like cranks it up to 11 right it's all about like wasn't the plantation so great? But in the meantime, the plantation is crumbling around right. everyone. Yeah, 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 it is. I think it is actually more evident in the film than initially when you first watch it, and and because you're so focused on their relationships and sort of their dynamic. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's not as obvious. Yeah, like kind of the first time you watch the movie, but I can definitely see it thinking back on it more now. Yeah, yeah, you kind of you see that 
like I said, not through the main narration, but through everything else that's happening, where it's more obvious to the viewer or to the reader than it is to the characters. All right, well, let's hit the final verdict. That's what it's called. No, I think of that every time you say the final verdict. I do, too. Every time. Now, uh, are you ready for your sentence? Sentence? But there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict afterwards. Katie, is the film Stand By Me or the novella The Body better? I'm going to give it to the movie. Oh. We've had a string of movies. Yep. But. One of those wasn't fair. It was Ready Player One. It was always going to be better (laughs) than the book, but. I think the the novella was good, and it's worth your time, especially if you're a big fan of the movie. Yeah, and probably if you're just a big Stephen King fan, which if you're a big Stephen King fan, you've probably already read read it. it, Um, But if you like the movie a lot, I would say that this is worth your time. If you like um, nostalgic stories about boyhood in the 50s and 60s, you'll probably like this story. And it's short. It's a novella, so it's under 150 pages. It's a quick read. I read it in like the span of three days. Mm -hmm. But I think that the movie tells a tighter story, and I think it tells a more emotionally meaningful story. Yep, the changes to Gordy and Denny's relationship, and then giving Gordy the climactic uh, sort of emotional triumph at the end. it's a more satisfying um, denouement. Yeah. Well, there you go. Look up that French word. It's your homework <laughs> if you don't know what it means. <laughs> Trudy, what's next? We will be tackling uh, one of my favorite books and movies featuring a character that I have long heavily identified with. Roald Dahl's Matilda. Yes. I don't think I've I've seen it in ten years, probably. Awesome, maybe. I'm excited. It's been a long time, uh, but yeah, I'm excited to watch it again. So, Matilda is the next one. It's a pretty short book, right? Yeah, it's, it's a children's book. children's book. Um, so yeah, you go check out Matilda. The movie is a classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so go check that out. Uh, what's her name's a badass these days? Uh, Mara Wilson. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah, that's her name. Mara Mara or Mara. Mara yeah, yeah. I don't know how you pronounce it, but Mara Wilson's a badass on Twitter. Matilda, next episode. Until then, do us a favor. Go find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to us. Give us a review. Give us a rating. Uh, It helps us out a lot. You can also find us on all of the social medias. Just search This Film is Lit. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads, and the subreddit r slash This Film is Lit. That's it. That's all the stuff. Right? Yes. Cool. Until next time, keep reading books, keep watching movies, keep being awesome.